Hello, my friends. Today, Joel is talking to Dale, the chief product officer at Axio, and they discuss how ransomware completely disrupted the cyber insurance industry, how Axio allows you to assign solid dollar amounts to cyber risk at your organization, and why having empathy in your career will help you get back up after failures. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. I started because um, my dad brought home an Apple II. So I, I had no interest in, well, no interest. I didn't know that you could be a computer programmer. Like I, you, you might as well be an astronaut, right? Like, yes, there are astronauts. Yes, there were computer programmers. They all wore short sleeves work for NASA or, or IBM, right? So when I'm a kid, but dad brings home this thing because he's a college professor. And I just loved it. Wanted to play with it immediately, wouldn't put it down. Thought it was the greatest thing ever, wouldn't let him have it back. I go to college, Emory University, degrees in psychology because I'm going to be a lawyer and then ultimately a politician. While I was there, I was like, oh, you know, they, there's this Carter Center of Emory University. I'm going to go try to work for the Carter Center. And they said, well, the opportunity that we have is for someone to be our technology department, to, to, be the, be, to be our programmer. It's like, okay, that's me. And they said, well, we use IBM equipment. You know IBM equipment? I'm like, no. They said, well, our primary development environment is DBase. You know DBase? I'm like, no. And I said, but I don't care because I know I'll pick it up. And they said, okay, which in retrospect was probably not a great decision that they made, but thank goodness that uh, they didn't have programmer tests then. So I did that all through college and... Uh, was still going to go to law school, was still going to be a lawyer, took the LSAT. I was like, well, let me work for a law firm for a year before I become go to school because I've got massive debt. Work for the law firm, again, dominantly doing um, programming computer searches on their systems to, to unearth evidence that we were going to use in support of litigation. And uh, everything else about the law firm, I hated. So I uh, said, all right, can't be a law firm, uh, can't, can't be a lawyer. I'll do the next most obvious thing, which is to be a musician. And then and uh, tried to play guitar and sing, had a band. We managed to play clubs and bars and never got further. And then finally, it was like, I wonder, can I be a software developer? So applied for a job, got a job. Again, I was, and they, this particular company was like, we don't want you to have had experience because we want to teach you the way we do things here. And we're concerned that if you have experience, you will come with a bunch of preconceptions and you will want to impose your views on this process. And we want our process. So I go in, I take their training, which was two weeks. I, and then I'm a member of the team. Then they want me to lead the training. Then, then they want me to lead the dev team. Then they want me to lead two dev teams. I was like, this is really great, but I want to be a developer. I, I'm not a manager. I'm a developer. So I actually left that company started as a, as a code librarian because I had been partway through a Novell CNE course and through a series of strange staff turnovers. After they'd gone to their third VP of development, somebody asked, Who, what does that guy do? Pointed at me and they said, we think he's the Windows developer. I was like, yes, of course, I'm the Windows developer. And then uh, that, I ended up leading that team. And then I did a series of startups after that, which that caused the whole, oh, now I'm now I'm the head of a hundred people. Now, you know, and it was, 
it, it, it not terribly different than the than the way that you got to where you are in a sort of kismetic set of just passion and opportunity and taking that step and it being a wonderful outcome. Yeah. Were you like working at the startups or were you founding the startups? So I was a founder at um, four of them. So the um, the uh, at this company where I eventually was running development, I got into a discussion with the CTO then, and he was. He believed that, that, that very strongly that the next uh, evolution for the product should be one thing. And I believe very strongly the next evolution for the product should be something else. And the head of marketing liked my idea better than he liked the CTO's idea and said, why don't we just leave and start a company? And for, fortunately for both of us, neither of us knew what the heck we were doing because had we known, it's a little bit like having a kid. If you truly knew exactly what you were signing up for, you would never do it. So that... That ignorance was, we were like, yeah, how hard can it be? So um, we left and started a company that was a Salesforce automation product uh, that was web hosted, the very first of its kind. And we were having to deal with like, how are we going to deal with hotel modems and dial up? And do we have to provide modem cards to the, to the people that are using it? And uh, built that company and ended up selling it back to the company that we had left. Started At the time, started another company. It was a, the guy that I had met over the course of that founder uh, startup experience said, Hey, listen, I want you to come and start a company with me. So I was like, Oh yeah, okay. I'll start that company. And that was, we uh, grew that company and ended up selling it. Um, and it was in the mobile internet space. So AT&T was our customer and uh, I supported the Capitol police in the U S Senate with a messaging app that ran on our impager. And then, um, then after that, I had a brief startup that fizzled immediately, which is, probably fine. And then uh, I, it's 2008 and I was going to start another company. I was like, yeah, this is easy. You just step outside your front door and you say, I'm a founder and money pours from the sky immediately and you get to start another company. <laughs> and um, But it was 2008. And so the money spigot had been turned off unbeknownst to me. And uh, luckily I had a friend, a relationship who said, hey, Dale, I know that you probably don't want to do this for long term, but why don't you come and run engineering for me. And this was at SecureWorks. It was my first experience to running a dev team that was security focused. And I started with eight people. I ultimately had a hundred some people. Dell bought the company. Um, after Dell bought the company, I transitioned from being head of, head of engineering there to being product strat- head of product strategy there. So got to design sort of what, what it is that the next gen products that the company's going to have are going to be and how are we going to approach the market. And Got that to a fun spot and then was like, man, I, I work for Dell now. Like I need, I need to be back to something that's, um, that's different. Had a brief stint as a CTO for pu- a publicly traded company concurrent, um, which interestingly enough, provided the operating system for the Aegis missile defense system. So that's my brush with the military background. That company decided to divest itself and to go in different directions. And then I did. Another, I was a start, another startup where I was now, a, I came into a startup now. So this was the first time now I'm coming into a startup um, where my responsibility was to try to recre- recast their product strategy and attempt to get the company sold. That was Dumbala, which was, a, it was an internet security product that used AI to detect infected endpoints without requiring agents on them. So it would look at their pattern of DNS traffic and go, that's a weird pattern of DNS traffic. It doesn't match human DNS activity. I bet that endpoint's infected. So be able to target those endpoints. We got that company successfully sold, had to do something else. And along came Axio, which 
the company was a services business interested in starting up a, a software product, a SaaS solution. And that's what I do now. How did you meet the team at Axio? Ah, so when I was head of product at, at Dell, I had this idea that, that Dell should offer all-you-can-eat incident response. So one of the, one of the challenges that, face, that CISOs face is budgeting for things. It's really sort of interesting, right? Like you would expect that, when they, that their biggest challenge is preventing, but to some degree, their biggest challenge is budgeting. And if they had a price certain, I know it will never be more than X, right? That's almost more important than having X be small at least for certain large companies, because if you can budget for it, you can address it, you can cope with it. So I was like, all right, SecureWorks, we should have an all-you-can-eat incident response program, so then the CISOs will all know how to budget. And I was having these conversations with folks, and um, they were saying, you know, we're, we're not comfortable with, even though you've done the modeling, we're not comfortable that this won't result in us being out a tremendous amount of money if something really horrible happens. Can we backstop it with insurance? As it happened, I was sitting on the, I was sitting on this advisory council, business executives for natural, national security. And we were working with the Department of Energy on this, uh, a rewriting of one of the maturity models. It was the C2M2 and Dave White was sitting right next to me. And I was like, yeah, I have this idea, but I need to know an insurance guy because I don't know anything about insurance or how you construct policies. And he's like, I know a guy. And so that's how I met Dave. And then that's how I met Scott. And Scott was incredibly generous. You, you talk about um, relationships and just sort of trying to provide value and letting, it, letting things happen from there. He, this guy, I'm just, no, I'm just some schmo, right? I was sitting next to Dave on a panel and he's like, sure, I'll take you around to, and introduce you to all the key insurance people in New York. And so I met the heads of almost everything, um, trying, to get cut, trying to build this bespoke weird thing. Um, that ultimately never happened, but it did result in me meeting Dave and Scott. So there you go. That's awesome. Yeah, that's that's typically how some of the best things happen in life. You're going for something really focused on it, really believing in it, and then you get something great, but it's not exactly what you are after to begin with. That's almost, that has happened every single time, right? Like have a dream, be passionate about that dream, but don't fall so in love with it that you don't see what's on the edges of it. Or else you're ending up. You're going to end up disappointed, right? Yeah, for sure. So, Axio, when did you join? How much has it grown since you've been there? Tell me a little bit about your experience there. So, I've been there for five years, and when I was there, uh, gosh, man, what, what, what were, were we like ten? Maybe people were uh, probably forty some now. The company was just services folks. It was Dave and Scott and a handful of people that Dave and Scott knew, and and um, it had no offices. It's, it's funny because it had no offices then. I was brought on to, to construct an office, to hire a dev team. So no developers, no product people. Come on board, Dale. Find a place for our offices. Hire people to populate and staff those offices and build us some product and let's go. And uh, I did that. We had a dev team. We grew the dev team. We have offices indicator. And now, of course, COVID happens. We've got an empty building and an empty office indicator. <laughs> We're back to being distributed. I have developers all over the U.S. And that the idea that I would build an office and worry about what do the desks look like and where's the coffee maker going to go and how am I going to hardwire water into it, which are all decisions I made and had to like I plumbed the coffee maker into the wall and hung the TVs and all the rest of it. And now all of that's like maybe we should just sublet that thing, turn it into an apartment. So yeah. 
It's been a, it's been a ride. Yeah. I was uh, having a conversation. I can't remember what, what the beginning of it was, but the end of it was pretty interesting. Like if you're a CTO or you're a founder, you're in this position, like there, there's nothing that's like off limits. Like I was talking to one, uh, I think it was, it was the CTO of Walmart at the time. And I was like, what type of problems are you facing? Cause I don't know what type of problems like you would face at that level. And he's like, Oh, we're trying to figure out, we're hiring 2000 engineers this, you know, year and we got to figure out where to put them. And I'm basically like a real estate agent and buyer. <laughs> Cause you have to just adapt to whatever the challenge is in front of you. You're, you are, you're absolutely right. And I, it's funny. Cause I think that, um, I don't know if you guys can hear my dog chewing his toy, but hopefully it's Jesse, cool. that's your first we, we have objective. to talk about the dog. He's awesome. Wyatt, my COVID dog. A lot of people, I think that when they got, uh, when they found themselves shut in, decided they wanted to be shut in with something. Um, and that, and so poof, I've always loved dogs and I like Wyatt too. The, um, as a CTO, I think the number one, apart from just, if you don't, if you're not passionate and, and in love with technology generally, you're making a horrible, horrible career choice because that's, that's all you are. And then the other sort of key qualification is you need to have a strong opinion about almost everything, but you need to be prepared to abandon that opinion as soon as it's clear that you're wrong because you're going to be wrong a lot, right? You're, and, and in fact, you're going to be right on Tuesday and wrong on Wednesday, or you're going to be right on Tuesday and that's going to be true for six months. And then you're going to be wrong. And so if you, you can't not have an opinion. The worst thing in the world is you go, oh, so CTO or chief product officer, should we do X or should we do Y? Well, you know, like that, that's not what you're for. You're for, I firmly believe that everything should be containers. We need to containerize everything. We can't possibly deploy in the old way. And then now you have to say, I firmly believe that while there's a place for containers, we really should be looking at serverless. Like you, you, you cannot have no opinion, but you cannot refuse to just jettison it because if you, if you can do neither one, then you're just not going to make it very long. Yeah. Someone once um, said like strong opinions, loosely held. Right. Like, hold That's the opinion. Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, other than plumbing, <laughs> what's, what's your role like today at Axio? Yeah, it's, it really is fantastic. So my, my, my job sits so I'm a chief product officer now and not a chief technology officer. And I, I think largely that distinction is, is historic more than it's anything else. Particularly within the context of startups, I think oftentimes the, the CTO role as distinct from the CIO role was given to the person who, yes, you're a technologist, but you're more focused on how you intend to take that technology and expose it to the, whoever your core customer is versus how you intend to take technology and push it back into the organization, right? So you could think about those, the CIO and the CTO standing back to back, one looking down into the organization, the other looking sort of out onto the horizon. When you start to, ultimately people started to think, you know, there's more to a product than the tech stack. There's the pricing aspects of it, and there's the way that you market it, and there's the way that it's talked about, and the messaging, and the way that the inside sales team copes with it, and the uh, objection handling, and, 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 and that started to, people started to think, you know, perhaps it's the case that we need someone with, with a scope that encompasses, that at least it, it pushes the edges out towards some of these other boundaries. And the CPO, I think, was born as a result. People kind of look at the places where there are hard lines between functions and end up sort of 
creating sea level titles that are designed to, to smoosh the edges of those lines. So still responsible for tech and tech stack, but also responsible for what are we going to apply that tech to? Like what, what is the core, what is the core problem that we think that we can uniquely solve? How do we talk about that problem and how do we differentiate it? And that differentiation sort of goes in both directions. It's how do we talk about it differently, but how do we do something differently? And you, you must have both the, and the security space is, is full of folks that do extremely different things that use the exact same words to describe it. And so it's incredibly hard sometimes to, to understand what's on offer, but also why you would want one thing versus another thing. And so frankly speaking, my role is to try to do both of those things, build things that are truly unique and different and talk about them in ways that makes it clear how they're unique and different. Um, and then respond to how that, to how that's dealt with. Right. Cause frankly speaking, oftentimes your initial idea is wrong. Like you're, you know what? I think CISOs need better calendaring and scheduling. And then you'll, you'll discover, no, in fact, that's not at all what they need. What they have are, you know, competing requirements as it relates to compliance and audits, and they need a way to address that, or they need a programmatic system for handling certain things or um, justifying the decisions they're making. So that's me. That's what I do. Very cool. Now, I know a lot about Axio now after li- listening to you know David's episode. Um, funny story, and I don't know, we can cut this out or not, we can decide later. But so I had messaged with David, and then I had quickly you know, just typed in like Axio or whatever on Google to learn more about the company and Axios came up. Right. <laughs> so I thought, I thought he was the CEO of that. Right. And so I've gone around for like four weeks, whenever his episode was, was being done four to six weeks. Um, Cause we got, we like connected pretty well. Cause I'm staying currently in Hendersonville, which is like right next to his hometown where he grew I know up. Right where that is. Yeah. And so, um, we were, we were talking about that and whatnot. And, uh, so I, I was so excited and I was telling everybody, I saw every time on the TV that a news channel referenced an Axios article. I was like, I know that guy. I was telling my wife, I was like, it's so great. And then I'm in the prep meeting <laughs> to do this. And I'm like, it's the news company. This is so exciting. I'm going to tell them about like how I see them all the time. <laughs> And I think it's important and we might want to, you know, leave this in simply because like some people, when they hear you guys and they're like, oh, great, AXIO, they're going to type it in and they might get the Axios as an answer. Yeah. They, in fact, we have gotten some very hysterical flames on Twitter as a result of like, I can't believe that you think that the, the squad is not. And then like, and we've gotten some e- inbound emails of people that are just like, how can you take this position? And I'm like, well, frankly speaking, we're here to help you with cybersecurity. Totally understand your point of view on politics and why you would be angry, but I'm not a part of that anger. At least I'm only a part of it recreationally, not professionally. So yeah, we there are folks that... Uh, now, here's the upside though. We got a lot of inbound traffic, a lot of inbound traffic, specifically from the healthcare space, around our tools that help with the NIST CSF. And in large part, it was because they found us on the NIST CSF government resources site and they clicked on us because our name starts with A. 
<laughs> so good. we're at the top of the list. The list is in alphabetical order. And they're like, I don't know. There's one click. So it's, it's a little bit like the old phone book, AAA plumbing. So sort of sad that Axios exists, but pretty awesome that we start with A. I love it. I love it. And that's so cool. Um, somebody had come out you know, about a year ago with a podcast and they just titled it CTO, CTO, like just so that they would be the first if you type in CTO. But uh, the, the algorithms were smart enough to like understand listeners and stuff like that. So for like a day or two, they were there and then they just like dropped back down. I was funny. like, oh, that's so great. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this is exciting. Okay. So what's the problem? Like, let's, let's get, let's like work a little bit, do some business stuff here. Sure. Why, why do, why do people, you know, you use your product? What problems are they facing? How do they find you guys? Yeah. So let's start with the, the, why they use it and what, and what problems they're facing. I think that, um, we have reached a moment in the, in the, in, in cybersecurity when we all realize that this is in fact not a problem that we're one product away from solving. So I think a long, for a long time, the idea was that, hey, listen, we're probably just, all I got to do is rack one more appliance. It, okay, our IDS wasn't enough. Let, let me add um, an intelligent AI-oriented detect. Oh, that wasn't enough either. Let me add a, um, an iron gateway to in front of my mail server. Oh, that wasn't enough. Okay, how about a web app firewall? We, we're always, we were always one pizza box away from having this whole problem knocked. Ultimately, we determined there are not enough, there's not enough rack space in America for us to iron our way out of the problem. And that means then that you have to start to treat cybersecurity as a programmatic issue, not as a, not as a, as something that you solve with a piece of technology. So if you think as an example, right, nobody looks at sales and goes, you know, the problem with sales is we don't have good contact managers. But as soon as we get a contact piece of contact management software, our problem with sales will be over and we can just move on, right? They all recognize that, yes, you need Marketo, and yes, you need Pardot, and yes, you need Salesforce.com, but you also have to manage your sales pro Salesforce like a programmatically. You have to have processes and all the rest of it, and therefore, you need tools that support those processes. And so what Axio provides are tools that support the process of running a cyber program. So that's benchmarking it, baselining it, planning improvements to it, then most imp as importantly, Justifying those improvements and beginning to actually talk about the benefit side of things. So another interesting thing about security generally is we have perfect vision into the cost side of things. We know who we're negatively going to impact. We know how much that negative impact is going to cost. We are always the no people. No, you cannot have that port open. No, you cannot use your own device. No, you cannot have like this. No, you may not use USB. So our lives is based, is, is filled with these moments where our job is to make your experience with technology less good than you experience at home. Like when I'm at home, everything just works. When I'm at home, I use my devices. When I'm at home streaming video. Well, when you come to the office, pal, but, and in exchange for that, we make vague statements about well, it's safer. Well, I'm trying to defend us. Well, and never before had, were we able to put quantified hard dollars against that. Well, our risk increases by $100 million a year if I let you plug whatever you want to into your laptop. And likewise, frankly, um, we used to treat cybersecurity almost like hygiene, like brushing your teeth. Of course you do it. It's just good, right? You want to be as safe as you can. As have you, you, nobody says, well, I mean, how clean is clean enough? Like you just say, you have to be clean. 
fully clean, utterly hygienically clean. And really, cybersecurity should be treated like all other forms of security, which is there is a cost to that security. It needs to be justified by the value it brings and the value to the, and the, and the, the restrictions on the business need to be in exchange for some hard dollar value. So my tool is designed to help people get to that, understand that, and then be able to make good decisions about it. Um, which I think is, again, it's, it's managing cyber as if it were a program that contributed to the business, as opposed to a technological problem that could be solved with just racking more kit. So do you, I'm assuming you have a product, do you like build some sort of software system that helps with all of this? Tell me about that. What's yeah, the name absolutely. So it's a SaaS-based platform that has three modules, one to help you measure baseline and plan improvements to your program based on any number of assessment methodologies and frameworks. Another that lets you build models of cyber risk so that connected to your business so that you can say, if ransomware hits us, this is how we imagine it. This is what we think it will cost us and where those costs are going to come from. And another that lets you model your insurance portfolio and, and try to, and, and it actually extracts language in it and highlights those places where there could be language that would cause an insurance policy that you think is going to cover you to not cover you because of an exclusion. And then that platform pulls all those things together to give you this idea of, we should make these changes in this order because it will return this benefit. We'll get this, it will get this value as a result. And yes, totally SaaS-based platform, modern technology, cloud-hosted, built using containers, built with Docker, Kubernetes, Mongo, et cetera. That's awesome. I like MongoDB. Um, and I didn't know all of this. Uh, I think it's pretty interesting not to be like a commentator, but I think it'll do really well. Um, and here's why. Like in the market, I see a lot of uh, assessments like scorecard type things. You know, I see those things out there. They're pretty common. I see a lot of products that, you know, they're the answer, their their protocols or their rule sets, you know. Um, some of them doing some pretty cool stuff, but I haven't yet until now seen one that handles the business conversation side of it. And it seems like that's what you guys excel at. That's that's precisely what we want to do. So I have kids, um, I have two kids in high school and one kid in college. And the kids in high school used to be in um, traditional sort of everyday American schooling. When they got to high school, the school went and shifted to IB. So international baccalaureate. The kids moved from ABCDF grading to number nine, six. So when it was ABCD, they would come home and say, dad, I got a B. And I go, oh, that's pretty good, right? And now that they're international baccalaureate, they come home and they say, dad, I got a six. And I'm like, Okay, like a six. Is that like six out of 10? Is, is that six out of 100? <laughs> like, am I supposed to be super excited? Like, I have no context. So, yes, they have a score, right? They, ha- they, ha- they have been quantified. But I, without any sort of con- context for it, I don't know whether I should be excited about that or not. And I think a lot of the existing sort of measurement frameworks that are out there are doing exactly the same thing, right? They say, you know what? In our view, you're a 373. Yay. Boo. Crap. Like, what? how am I supposed to address that? And I think that most folks, if I say, this is going to cost you $100,000, I don't need to contextualize that for you anymore. Because you know whether that's a huge deal, 
a, not a huge deal, how that fits within your business, how it doesn't. So we think that you got it, that A, cyber cybersecurity is a business problem. And because it is, it, it needs to incorporate everybody in the business and it needs to use the language of business, which as it turns out is, is currency. I want to go a little bit deeper now. I've got questions. Okay. Okay. So let's talk about like a company like security scorecard. As far as I know, they evaluate risk. When I was talking with them, like primarily the way I would use it is like, I could go get my security scorecard that would help me get through the process. Like I've done a couple integrations with like fortune 500 companies and super long and the amount of paperwork's crazy. It's supposed to help like, you know, give a credit score for your security risk. No doubt. But but what I just, what I learned from your modules, I mean, it's like you guys are adjacent, or but like, is that correct? You're adjacent. You're not direct competitors, but no. So security scorecard is interesting, and we know those guys. We met those guys, and they security scorecards. And again, this is member of the whole. We all use the same language to describe very different things. Like so, we all talk about oh, I quantify risk. We're all going to talk about quantifying. We're all going to talk about risk, right? The, and yet what they're doing is evaluating a combination of your external surface. So what do you look like to the hacker and giving you a number that is designed to be in effectively summarizes everything they see, right? So it can be very, the most, the highest fidelity description would be for me to go down the list and tell you, you have 15 ports open, you have unpatched servers, but that conversation is obviously going to take a long time to have. And so it's easier to say you're a 417. And the people in your peer group average around 450. So if I tell you just those two things, well, at least you know, should you do something? Should you not do something? Should you feel good about yourself? Should you not? What you don't know is what things should you do? And how much is it reasonable for it to cost before you decide not to deal with it? And and, and how good is good or how bad is bad? Is it just that your peer group are all even worse than you? Or is it in fact that you're, or is it, so in fact, let me give you an anecdote. We had a CISO that, you, that used a previous platform and he, they measured and they got a number. And first of all, this number scale was between zero and five. So the entirety of the universe of things that they could measure fit between zero and five. And the reason that's a problem is that they, then they got the entire board and everybody in the company excited about this idea that they were currently like a 2.3 and they were going to raise that score. So then they they were a 2.3 and they became a 2.7 based on this, this scoring over the course of a year. Guy goes to deliver it to the board. Hey, listen, we were 2.3. We set this objective and we became 2.7. And the guy goes, wait a minute, that program cost us $10 million. Are you telling me that every... Point one improvement is basically a $3 million exercise. $3 million for point one, that seems terrible. So sure, and there are two problems with this, right? One is that they just picked a scale that compressed everything into this range that's like, well, it's not, you're not paying for decimal places. You're paying for all the things that contribute to that decimal place. And if I multiplied everything by a thousand, now you'd be happier, right? If I said, oh, no, 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 that was... 300 points of improvement, not three tenths of a point, of, not three tenths of one per, of, a, of an improvement, right? But the other thing is, is really, really, even if I did that, it's still smoke and mirrors, it's chicanery, right? If instead I said that $10 million of investment offset $100 million of risk, now would you be upset? You would not. 
And it wouldn't matter whether I said that $100 million was 0.1% of a score or, or 10x of a score. The net of it is, what, you know, and, or if I multiplied my scale by a million, like, again, if I said, oh, if that, if that $10 million of investment offsets $100 million of risk, it's good. If that $10 million of investment offsets $10 million of risk, then I have another product for you instead. You just give me all your money and now there's nothing for the other, the bad guy to steal. And you've set off all your risk at a dollar for dollar, right? So that's the judgment that we feel like people need to make and why our tool ingests things like security scorecard and tries to attach it to dollar values so that you can start to have conversations that way instead. Well, that's pretty cool. And then if they don't have, if they haven't done like a security scorecard type thing, your baseline improvements module one that you described would like allow me to pick like, oh, measure this against like NIST standards or whatever it would be. Exactly right. So, so that we think frankly that, um, and it almost doesn't matter where you start. If you're going to do this work well, you're going to need a combination of things. You're going to need outside in automated understanding of what your attack surface looks like. That's, you can choose a tool like Security Scorecard. You can choose a tool like BitSight. You can choose a school like Fortify Data. All of these tools have their pluses and minuses, and I'll let them compete. We're interested in all of them. We're engaged with all of them. You do need to have this understanding of what do you look like from the attacker's perspective. But you also have to have an understanding of what you look like from inside. And that from inside can and should start with what your people think about what you look like from inside. Now, ultimately, you're probably going to want to integrate some of the tools that you have that provide telemetry to inform that internal view. But you can start by just asking your people, hey, listen, how well do you think we do at X? And how well do you think we do at Y? And most of the time, if they're using it for their own benefit, they're pretty honest about what it is. And then the last is you have to take both of those things, outside view, inside view, and you have to associate it with the risks that you're actually facing, like what are you defending against? What are the operational consequences of that defense? And therefore, how much is it going to cost you when those defenses fail? And that's where you can start to go, all right, where, where do the improvements really need to come from? You're not chasing a score now, right? You're chasing a dollar value. I like it. It's smart. I really do. The three modules, baseline improvements. I was taking notes, by the way, if you heard me typing. Okay. <laughs> baseline improvements. Uh, models of cyber risk, insurance policy understandings, things like that. Do you have different names for these three modules? Uh, uh, one's the assessment module, the other's the risk quantification module, and the other, the last is the insurance analysis module. And something that I didn't sort of touch on, I sort of talked around it, but didn't get to is that once you know that something's going to cost, what something's going to cost you if it happens, you actually can start to treat it you can stop thinking of it in terms of like hygiene and start thinking of it as a business problem. And that opens up the door to things like, well, should we just insure against it? If, if you think about, um, I'm sorry, if you, my house is uh, up uphill from a tiny little creek. And you, you might be surprised to note that it's not on stilts. Now, if I wanted to be 100% certain that there will never be any water in my living room, I should put my house on stilts. And I'm pretty sure if I got it on 18 foot pylons, I could be absolutely certain that um, unless Noah floats by in the ark, there's never going to be any water in my living room, right? <laughs> um, however, the chances of that happen, happening are so desperately remote that it's ridiculous for me to approach it with an engineering exercise, right? So what do, what do people do about that? They insure against it. Like, 
it's possible that my house will catch fire. It doesn't happen every day. <laughs> it hasn't ever happened. It's not my house, you might be surprised to learn, is not made exclusively out of asbestos. It's in fact made out of all kinds of flammable materials. And again, because the appropriate approach to the risk is just to insure against it. So we, but you can't do that unless you know the, the economic consequences of not just defending yourself, because you'll never know whether the insurance is worth it if you don't, right? So that's where we bring the insurance module in, attach it to the quantification module, and you can start to treat risk like, like you do everywhere else, right? There are stores in the mall that have jeans on tables in front of the store, not even inside, right? Is there a risk that some of those jeans are going to get stolen? Yeah, but it's but in fact, they call it breakage. They don't even call it theft, right? They, it's called breakage. It's breakage, marketing breakage. They know that if you that many people are going to pick up those jeans and walk into the store and buy them and then notice a scarf and a belt. And so it's worth it to them. There are diamond shop, there are jewelry stores in that same mall. They weirdly do not put diamond rings outside the jewelry store on a table um, because the breakage in that case is too consequential. So how do you know which one you are, right? Is, it, is, that, is that a piece of cyber tech jeans or is it diamonds? And the only way to know is to have quantified it in operational terms. And then it makes sense whether, is it okay if our jeans are outside the store or is it not okay that our diamonds are outside the store? And it, like I said, it used to be that the poor CISO the answer was always no, that stuff is staying inside, right? Because my job is to make sure that nothing breaks. Well, now it's like, eh, give and take. I like it. That's good. You've got really good like analogies. Uh, it's pretty cool. Um, I want, I'm curious, you, you sparked something in my mind when you were talking about insurance, um, like you insure against stuff, you if you build your house and it's a newer model and you put fire breaks in on the walls a few feet up, you're going to get a little discount for that insurance. And then the insurance kind of starts shaping the construction industry because you want these discounts. How is the insur- how is the insurance for this risk starting to shape what's happening in the security industry? That's a, that is a really um, insightful question that you just asked me. And it is, in fact, a thing that has just now started. So back in what was it, 2012, 2013, um, I remember at SecureWorks, we were desperately hoping that we could convince insurers that, um, that they should basically provide discounts to, insure, to SecureWorks customers. And the reason we were doing it is because we were trying to put a price on the value of our software. And again, when nobody knows what cybersecurity is provi- benefiting them, it's very hard to price things. My tool is $200,000 a year. Why should I pay $200,000 a year? Well, because you'll be safer. How much safer? Are you guaranteeing that I will never have a cyber incident? Well, no, I could never do that. Oh. So then we thought, oh, well, maybe the insurance company will say, well, I'll give you a $300,000 discount on your, on your insurance policies if you will use SecureWorks. And now we know that the value of our services is at least $300,000. But the insurers were never interested in doing it. And in part, they were like, we need you to place a value on the risks that you're protecting against. We don't have any understanding about what we can expect cyber to cost these companies. And we also have no understanding about what elements actually make for a less risky company versus another. 
So in the fire industry, which has been around forever, fire insurance is one of the most ironclad and regulated types of insurance there is because it's been around forever, right? So they know you need sprinkler heads. They have to be this far apart. You want shingles that are made out of this material and not that material. The, 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 the fire breaks have to be this far and not that far. In Chicago, the wiring has to be running conduit, not, not up, up the wall and on and on and on, right? They, they know that. So they know how to value the presence of those, um, construction improvements. For the longest time, cyber had nothing like that. And then we went through this heyday period where cyber insurance policies came about and people were making so much money with them that it was in nobody's interest to look too carefully at it. Like folks were just paying money for these policies and receiving almost nothing in return. And they, they were practically giving them away at the door if you were willing to come in and get a quote on something else. So then... There was this thing that you guys probably not being insiders haven't heard about, but it, it was, it's called, um, ransomware. And it, as it turned out, ransomware ended up being reasonably consequential and it ripped like a brush fire through the insurance industry, right? It was as impactful to the insurance industry as 9-11 was to the property insurance industry, which if you think about it, 9-11 caused a lot of trouble for a lot of folks that insured a lot of things in downtown New York, right? And ransomware is that but wider, that but worse. And so now as a result, one, the insurers have gotten a lot smarter about like what makes for good risks and what makes for bad risks and what pieces have to be in place and what separates the folks for which are first you everybody's in the ransomware bucket. Everybody's got blood pressure. Everybody's got some sickness, some something that makes them, that, that could cause their demise eventually, right? But there are some folks that are going to die immediately. And there are some folks that are going to die after they're 102. And so now the insurance industry is beginning to tease out the, how do we know which, of, which, which, which one you are, right? Ah, you don't have privileged access management. Ah, you have open RDP ports. Ah, you use VDI or you don't use VDI. They, they, and because of that, they're starting to be able to place a value. A, they have to, right? Because they can't afford not to, and they can't afford not to cover cyber. And they're starting to be smart enough that they can. So now they're beginning to talk to us about, and we are talking to them, hey, listen, we can work together to help our clients with a really challenging problem, which is to convince you that you should insure them. And we'll ultimately better be better for everyone. So in fact, um, we have a couple of folks that received breaks on their premiums by virtue of the fact that they use the Axio platform and could describe not only where they currently were, but what their plans for improvement were. And I think that you're going to start to see, and you've started just outside of Axio, you've seen this with a couple of other products too, where, where it's like a, it's a combined policy plus tech stack, which is getting at the same idea with a slightly different composition, which is rather than give you a discount if you have tech. I'm going to give you the insurance and the tech as a bundle, um, which, you know, maybe it's just because I don't, that's not my company, but I think that my approach is better because I think it provides better flexibility. And, um, and like, like for the same reason that I wish my car didn't have a map anymore, it would just use my phone. My phone updates itself all the time. It's modern. I can replace my phone more easily than my car. If my car would just use the tech stack in my pocket, everybody would be better. My phone, I upgrade every four or five years, right? So I think that this idea of looser coupling that provides uh, one thing to rev at a pace that's much more rapid than the insurance policy pace is a better plan. But ultimately, that's what's happening. People are 
are are coming to grips with this idea that you need uh, that the insurance industry has to be smart about cyber that they need to incent it like there needs to be market incentive for folks to do improvements in their cyber programs um otherwise they won't right like in fact you're disincented by in the market to improve your cyber program right so everybody recognizes the incentive has to exist that the intelligence has to exist and that the friction associated with the transaction has to be removed and that's that means exactly the coupling you hinted at yeah that's interesting um I was thinking, so you're telling me, and I, I just want to better understand, there, there are some insurance companies that will like provide some type of security software because that sounds so problematic because like, let's say I'm an insurance company, XYZ insurance. And, and like what I say, okay, if you buy solar winds, like, I don't know your configuration. I don't know who's managing it. I don't know the setup just because you purchase a license. It like, you know, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It works at the small. All right. So if you imagine that you're replacing nothing, um, and me- remember, I mentioned that my kids might be coming in there here. Yeah. Um, so, uh, hey, well, the noise, yeah, welcome to the, <laughs> welcome to my podcast, Jada. Um, the, uh, if you imagine that you're at the small end of the market and that you're replacing nothing or a very limited tech stack, and you imagine that you're dealing with a set of potential configurations that is more constrained, you can see how it might work. Hey, look, it's a little bit like, um, should everybody that wants a good living room video experience go and buy component-based home theater? Probably not, because what they'll end up with is like a pack of wires and amplifiers and stuff just everywhere, and they'll still not be able to watch TV. And so it's 100% fine for them to get a sound bar and a you know reasonably good flat screen, and, and the, you just use HDMI and be done with it, and no, you don't need a warming amp and all this other stuff, right? On the other hand, if it really was the case that you wanted the ultimate experience in your living room, now and you can afford it, and you have the experts for it, now there's another solution that makes that will deliver a much better ultimate outcome. So I think that some of these insurance plus product are focusing on the folks that need the TV and the soundbar. They're not doing what you were pointing at too, which is a how are you going to know the acoustics of the space? How are you going to figure out where to put the preamp? How are you going to deal with all the space constraints? What about you know what are you going to do in the ceiling? You know, and all of those types of questions that cyber often brings up when you are mid to upper end of the market. You can definitely see the progress happening. Um, four years ago, when I got my, I got like business owners policy for like the area I was renting and a couple other things with the business, and it was literally like, oh, check this box for one million dollars in ransomware coverage, and I was like, that makes no sense. Like, I'm just gonna check this box. I was like, these guys have no idea like what this is, and so I checked the box, and then like you know, two years go by, nothing, and then like year. Three, I get the like questionnaires, and I was like, they finally caught on. They they were just giving it for a couple of years. They were getting hammered by ransomware attacks. I even had this um, one guy on the show, like maybe two years ago or so. Um, he had a company, and what they were doing were like they were the company that their customers were the insurance people, and the, yeah. and so when they were having an attack or something, they would go down to this company to negotiate with the terrorist, essentially, or, or, or the cyber criminals, I don't know what you call them, and just to try to negotiate down or get the data, first see if they could get the data back, second negotiate down, check if it's like an internal job, you know, if they're trying to scam the insurance. Um, so you could, I can definitely see how it was like a tidal wave that hit the insurance companies. So here's an interesting thing. It didn't just land on the cyber policies themselves. This is the crazy part. So um, 
inside, there is there is another policy type that was effectively given away, like as a sweetener, please come and take our other policies and I'll give you this one policy. And it was kidnap and ransom. So kidnap and ransom policies were obviously, they were initially intended to cover the, oh, if your executives find themselves in um, Juarez and things go south, we'll pay for the activity associated with trying to extract your executives from Juarez. Well, it didn't take long for someone to go, hey, this is called ransomware, right? Like we're having to pay a ransom, right? Oh, we should use our kidnap and ransom policies. And in some cases, these policies had massive limits for free because nobody expected, like just most people don't send their executives to Juarez. So why not just have the policy, right? And now all of a sudden there were these huge payouts and everybody's going, wait, 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 um, that's not what we meant. We take it all back. And so you're seeing like exclusions being written and premiums going up and the insurance company struggling, grappling with, with the a world. And it, I really feel, I feel for them, right? Because um, anytime you deal with rate of change problems, you create systems that are very hard to manage. So policies, legislation, they operate at one time cycle, right? At a particular time cycle, right? They, they, one is very, very, very slow. The other's just very slow. And in part, it's because insurance policies and um, interface with government regulations, right? They're, in order to get a policy into the market, you have to talk to at least 50 individual state board of insurance plus the feds. That creates a particular rate of change. On the other hand, ransomware changes in seconds. And they can be extremely responsive to market dynamics, right? So, aha, I've, I've encrypted all your stuff. You should pay me back. Okay, I will. God, that sucked. I should have backups. I have backups now. Aha, I've encrypted all your stuff. Too bad I have backups. I've encrypted all your stuff and I've left the back door in and I'm not going to tell you where the back door is unless you pay me. Okay, I'll pay you. God, that sucked. Okay, I need gold images for all my machines. All right, now I'll re-image, okay? Aha, I've kept all your data. And if you don't pay me, I'm going to release it and you're going to be the next Sony where all your starlets are going to know that they were being bad-mouthed. And so, now, and so you see that basically they're able to change their business model and respond immediately and every time. And that's happening on, on the less than a month cycle. So you've got this thing that's, that, whose rate of change is practically daily and you've got this other thing whose rate of change is is at best yearly and more like every four years and the two interface it's tricky right they'll adapt they will they'll, and, they'll, and they'll, they'll have to yeah software i think provides the differential and this is precisely why I think that a looser coupling is more interesting, right? So if the insurance company says things, and by the way, I feel the same way about legislation. If instead of mandating a particular, thou shalt have solar winds, thou must not have solar winds, thou shalt have privileged access management, you, you mandate a framework. We ensure the use of currently defined best practices is determined in some way. We ensure um, the, the presence of staff and programs designed to make sure that you're doing the right, whatever the right thing is all the time, then that, that language creates this differential. It allows basically this thing to turn at one rate and the threat to turn at another rate and the software and the processes in the middle provide the link.
That's brilliant. I'm really happy with my team. They told me like after the prep call that you were awesome. This would be a great interview. And I was like, yeah, for sure. I want to wrap up with a, a, a leadership question. Sure. Um, inspired by Patrick over at Claro MDSL. Uh, their episode that we talked about, they do like expense management. I'd never seen another company that did this, but they'll, and there might be a million, so you can tell me, but they essentially like tracked expenses and did expense management for multiple companies. And then now they have this like new layer of data of like what different people pay. Um, and they do something with that data. I'm not entirely sure. But uh, we were talking about leadership. We were talking about being humble. Um, and I'm curious, like, what are, are you a, like a humble type leader? What's, what's your emotional reaction when you hear humble leader? I, I, I love that phrase. I, I think it's, it is absolutely, it's, it's a little bit like servant leadership, right? If you think about like who let, but the, the tricky thing with humble leader, as well as the tricky thing with servant leader is um, is that there's something about leading that begs you to be the opposite of that, right? Like it's not the humble person that says to themselves, I have the right to run everything, right? And so what you end up having to hold within yourself is this understanding that you've been granted this opportunity. And it's not just for no reason. It's because you are who you are, but that a part of that is... Um, an acknowledgement that that everyone contributes and that you can't do it by yourself and that a leader is otherwise just go be a solo artist, right? Like it's fine. So you must incorporate other people's feelings and you must, and that requires a, a tremendous amount of humility. My, um, I had a CEO and he said to me, Hey Dale, you're, you're going to make uh, 200 decisions every week. And one of those decisions is going to matter and you're going to get two of them right. So you need to be really careful that you're getting data from everywhere else and that you're that you're not worried too terribly much that you feel like you have to directly control all the things that you um that are happening and I think if you try to incorporate those thoughts then you then you get what you want. And then the the last point on that from my own experience, right? Um is you can succeed as an utter and complete jerk. Like you absolutely can. You can be a total and complete tyrant. You can be, um, you can rule with an iron fist and you can succeed by virtue of your strong personality and people's just unwillingness to fight you. And you can succeed as a kind individual that cares about the people that are working with them and deeply wants them to succeed too. And is hoping that their sort of combined success will buoy that person up too. But I'll tell you, when you are the tyrant guy, if you slip, you will find no one supporting you. And so you better be right every single time. You better be, you better, you better do nothing that it makes because they are, people are excited to see you fall. On the other hand, if you're the type of person that is constant, that feels like, Hey, look, um, I'm going to win this by having people better than me around me that for whatever reason want me to be the front of it. Then when you slip, People are like there for you, want to support you, want you to do well, are rooting for you. I'd much rather have someone root for my success than root for my failure is all. And I love that in the, prof in the professional world that that's becoming less and less popular. Like there's more awareness now than ever of how uh, obtuse it is to be a tyrant. <laughs> right, right. It's just not, ultimately, it's just a bad strategy. I, 
it's just it's it's just strategically bad. Like Machiavelli would be the first first to tell you, right? Like you really want you cannot preserve fear forever in a free world. And so the last thing you want is for people to root for you to fail. That's that's good. I'm gonna ask you another one. Do you have time for one more? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's say that uh, I was on your team. I'm I'm just like maybe a, a manager or leader on on one of your teams, and I wanted to um, stand out to you because I wanted more opportunity in my career. What could I be doing that would catch your attention? So for me, uh, I, that's a, I love that question. Um, for me, frankly, and, and it might be look. I, I want to calibrate this where it is highly dependent upon what it is that's important to the company and what the key objectives are, but. When you're talking about startups in particular, I want people that take initiative and take risks, right? Like I, what I, and frankly speaking, I want people that take initiatives, take risks and are willing to challenge me. And I, and I recognize that that requires a tremendous amount of trust and requires a tremendous amount of faith because almost everybody I've ever worked for has told me, Hey, listen, Dale, I really want you to call me out if you feel like I'm making a mistake. And almost none of them meant it, right? What they, what they wanted was the confidence that I wasn't a yes person, um, not me actually calling them out, but I really mean it. So I'm looking, look, I hire, my job is to hire people that are smart with opinions. My job is to make sure that it's, that the company is not dependent on me being right every time. And so I need people to take risks, take initiatives. And, and are, are not afraid to tell me that they think I'm making a mistake and believe me when they say, when I say, I want those things. That's so do those things and we're good. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you would like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.